Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lipman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham. We do welcome you to this week's edition of the Lone Star Podcast. We're glad you're joining us every week, our Christian and Jewish listeners. This is Pastor Trey Graham in Texas, joined as always by my friend Rabbi Dove Lipman in the land of Israel. And Rabbi, it was wonderful to see you last week. How are you today? Thank God. It was wonderful to have you here. And I what a blessing from above that you were able to be here during the celebration of the 70th year of our independence. And you got to see firsthand and your group uh, what it's like in Israel. Uh, during this time. It is a special time to be there for three holidays in one 10-day span. Yom HaShoah, the Holocaust Remembrance Day, Yom HaZikaron, the Memorial Day, and Yom HaAtzma'ut, Israeli Independence Day. And talk to our listeners for a moment, especially our American listeners. There's a very important celebration whenever the founding of the State of Israel is celebrated, but also because it's the 70th year, 2018, since 1948, there's a special biblical number for the meaning of 70. Tell us about it. So 70 actually finds itself in many different sources uh, in our tradition. Uh, King David says in Psalms, the year, the life of a person is 70 years. So that's considered to be sort of a life cycle. Uh, 70 is a number which is significant to the Jewish people because we started as a nation of 70 when we first came to Egypt. Uh, the Bible is very clear that it was 70 people who came. Uh, it has significance in the Talmud. It's always used as sort of the, the symbol of a long period of time. Something has happened. Uh, a, 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 a life cycle or a, a cycle in our nationhood. So there's no doubt that as we reached this 70, uh, that we had that recognition as well and realize, wow, we've been here with God's help for 70 years, and we can really look back and see what has been accomplished in that time. And also, the Jewish tradition talks about 70 nations, that there are different people groups, non-Jews, who would be part of serving the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Genesis 10 and 11 and other passages, the 70 nations that are non-Jews, joining with the Jews to worship the one true God. And that's what we're doing here on this podcast. That's very much true. And, and I always mention, especially Christian groups, that, that I think one of the beauties of Judaism and Israel is our perspective regarding other faiths, that it's not just about the Jewish people, but we want to make sure that all people can worship God. And even if people worship differently than we do, uh, we respect that. We don't even proselytize and try to convince people to become Jewish. And the land of Israel, the state of Israel, has really been an example of that in providing all faiths 
with uh, a platform uh, to to use the Holy Land to get closer to God, and it's something which we're absolutely very proud of. So I guess as we celebrate the 70th year, we can also celebrate the symbolic 70 of the nations of the world that are able to join together with us and benefit uh, from having the land of Israel. Talk about the transition event, and we were there last week, and it's so powerful when you move from Memorial Day, sadness, then the sun goes down, and on the Jewish calendar, the day changes from Memorial Day to Independence Day, that transition. Talk about that. It's very unique in the world. So as you pointed out, uh, the Jewish calendar, uh, the new day begins with sundown, and uh, in Israel, they, they, the founders and the early leaders had a brilliant idea to connect together Memorial Day with Independence Day. Uh, growing up in America, I don't have a doubt that military families, and especially those who have lost loved ones in war, Memorial Day is a solemn day. But if I recall correctly, for the broader country, it really isn't. And it's actually the first uh, weekend of the year and going to the beach. And, and in Israel, Memorial Day, the entire country pauses for a day to focus on the thousands that we have lost in fighting for our homeland and those who have given up their lives both in the in the army and in terror attacks and the whole country pauses there's this dramatic siren where we all stop for two minutes and in deep reflection and the whole country is focused on that but then as the sun goes down we shift it to independence day and the flag is raised from its place at half mast and the music starts playing and the celebrating starts and it really is special to recognize, yes, we cry, yes, we mourn, yes, we have to have sacrifice in order to get this land. And uh, But now that we have it, we're sure going to celebrate, and not just celebrate, but also give thanks to God. And you were able to see and feel what it's like here on uh, Independence Day and the joy and the celebrations and the dancing. And uh, we really do appreciate that we have this land, that we have our state, and we really do use it as a day to give thanks to God. And I sent you personally a message, and you know that, that my Sunday sermon at First Melissa was from Psalm 116, and I talked about that, that in that psalm, David says the Lord protected the people, comforted them, brought them to the land of the living. And so we talked about the mourning over the loss and the valley of Sheol or the valley of the grave or the valley of hell versus the land of the living. And that's what David talks about in Psalm 116. And so we talked about that in our church, that that's very much illustrating the experience of going from Israeli Memorial Day to Independence Day. I thought it was very beautiful that you chose uh, that topic for the sermon, and the, and the verse that you quoted was just so spot on. And I think it's an example of how you know coming to Israel and experiencing it together with us, and then bringing that message, um, bringing that message back and sharing it with others. Uh, that's part of the blessing of this relationship, and I and I really valued uh, the point that you made. Well, let's go ahead and look at the Word of God for this week's Torah portion. Remember, listeners, that our Jewish friends for over 2,000 years have been studying what's called the parashah, the Torah portion, where they take the first five books of the Old Testament and divide it into sections and its weekly readings. And this week is a double reading, as the rabbi has explained to us, that on some occasions you take a break from the weekly readings in order to have holiday readings, and so you have to catch up. And this is one of those double readings. It comes from the book of Leviticus, chapters 16 through 20. 
and it's a double reading, so it has two names. The first name is Akare Mot, and the second name is Kedoshim, and we'll ask Rabbi Lipman to explain those names to us. So the first one is Akare Mot, which means Akare means after, and Mot means death. This is a portion that begins after the death of Aaron's sons. If you recall, we talked about that there are times that a person can think they're serving God in the right way, but not really following his word. And Aaron lost two sons because of this, and they were uh, killed uh, tragically, but punished for offering a foreign fire uh, to God. And right on the heels of that, you have Mot, which means after the death of those two sons. And we have the list of commands regarding how the high priest should act, how the priests have to act in the temple, uh, and to make sure that they tr- do things properly and with all the commands and with all the holiness and that that tragedy is not repeated. That's Ahremot. Kedoshim is the command to be holy. Kadosh means holy, and it's a portion that deals with many of the commands that enable us to be holy people, something that everybody aspires towards. And the portion actually delineates exactly what's required uh, to reach that status and level of holiness. As we begin looking at Leviticus chapter 16, we start with the holiest day of the year for the Jews, the most somber day of the year. In English, we call it the Day of Atonement. In Hebrew, it's Yom Kippur. And this special fast day, not a feast, but a fast day, is an annual Remembrance Day, and additional instructions are found in Exodus 30 and Leviticus 23 and Leviticus 25, Numbers 29, lots of different places, but Leviticus 16 is the fullest explanation of Yom Kippur, and one writer I have, quote, says, the main purpose of the Day of Atonement ceremonies is to cleanse the sanctuary from the pollution introduced into it by the unclean worshipers so as to make possible God's continued presence among his people. So I'll ask you to comment on that quote and give us the background before we talk to specifics. Well, to be honest with you, I'm going to uh, disagree a little bit (laughs) with uh, the uh, author of that quote, um, because I really do feel that Yom Kippur is, is much more than just a cleansing of the temple. The temple is the vehicle that we use to achieve our own cleansing. It's a day of both national cleansing and also individual cleansing. It's a day where uh, the holiest day of the year for sure, we separate ourselves from eating, drinking, other physical activities, and spend the entire day in synagogue, in prayer, in song, in confession, in committing ourselves to be better in the future. So it's the day that we look forward to, I'd say, all year uh, to be able to renew our individual and national relationships with God. And when we had a temple, the temple was very much the focus of our achieving that. So now without a temple and without being able to do animal sacrifices, when Yom Kippur comes on the calendar, what is the way to observe it in your mind? It's coming up in September This year, September 18 and 19, is Yom Kippur in this year, 2018. So how will you celebrate it? The first thing I'll say is that we're lacking the temple uh, very much. You know, you'll read this Torah portion, you'll see how the entire focus of the day was on the high priest in the temple, the offerings that he gave, the incense that he offered, where he went, and... uh, 
Abe describes it in vivid detail, and we don't have that anymore. So we replace those sacrifices and the experience of the temple with our prayers in synagogue. But, and we spend the whole day, we literally will spend the entire day in synagogue, nothing else uh, happens. Uh, the day actually goes quite quickly. It's a tremendously cleansing day to experience this. But we also don't forget what happened in the temple. We take out the Torah scrolls and we read this portion on Yom Kippur. In the prayers, we go into detail and talk about the service of the high priest. And we actually then finish off by saying all that was when we had a temple. And today we don't. And then we go into a sad prayer where we talk about how we miss it so much. But again, as always, end with an optimistic note of looking forward to the time when we come back to it. Another note I read talks about the comprehensiveness of the sins atoned for, that there are no sins that are excluded from this opportunity for forgiveness, that this is the opportunity for sinners of all types to come before the Lord and receive forgiveness. Absolutely. And that's a critical part of Yom Kippur, our belief that God wants to forgive us uh, as long as we seek to atone. And there are three elements that we have to go through in order to show that we sincerely desire it. The first is acknowledging our sin, and that's confession before God of the sin. Um, Then there's the regret over the sin. And then the regret leads to a commitment for the future not to do the sin again. Those are the three elements. And through that formula, and through the prayers of the day, and through the fasting, we're able to achieve both individual atonement and also national atonement. And it's quite powerful, Pastor, especially during the confessional. Everybody has their own private individual confessions, but then there's also a national confession, which we actually sing in almost a sing-song. If you hear it, it doesn't sound horribly depressing. It's not a happy tune per se, but the fact that we sing it together, there's an element of unity and even an element of joy, the fact that we are reaching out to God in this way. The, the place that where I pray in a, in a rabbinic seminary, Shiva, here in Beit Shemesh, uh, there is a tremendous amount of singing and dancing and joy on this day. And the joy comes from knowing that we're cleansing ourselves and bringing ourselves closer to God. So when we talk about Yom Kippur, remember it's in the fall of the year. In fact, Leviticus 16 gives us the date of it. On verse 29, this shall be a permanent statute for you in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month. You shall humble your souls, not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Verse 31, it is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. So when there was a temple, first temple period, what Christians would call the Old Testament era, second temple period when we would call it the New Testament or the time of Jesus era, the high priest, one person in Hebrew, the Kohen Gadol, would go into the Holy of Holies, the Kodesh HaKodeshim, and one person on one day of the year was allowed to enter the physical presence of God. Talk about all of the preparations he had to do. There were, as I understand it, rehearsals and practices and and personal repentance and personal cleansing before he could be a representative for the people. He had to be right with God. Talk about the preparations. There's a tractate in the Talmud that's called Tractate Yoma, 
which talks about this day from the word yom, which means day. And it talks about a week's worth of preparation, a week where the high priest is separated from everyone else, also does some practicing, uh, purifying himself, bringing himself to a, a the highest of levels to make sure that he can perform properly on this day. Because literally, in the time of the temple, the entire service fell on his shoulders, and he had to enter the Holy of Holies in a state of purity to make sure that uh, when he leaves, uh, he leaves intact, he leaves alive. There was a possibility if he went in and did it improperly that the punishment could be death. But he also wanted to make sure that he was in a state of mind to achieve the atonement for the people. So a full week uh, of preparation. They would even set aside another Kohen uh, also who would be there just in case something happened to the high priest that he could fill in as the pinch hitter, so to speak, uh, to come in. Uh, there was real seriousness placed in this, and the high priest had to spend that week engrossed in that preparation. And when the person who was the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, remember our listeners' reminder is in the first temple period, there was the Ark of the Covenant. In the second temple period, there was no Ark of the Covenant. There was a place for it, but the Ark wasn't there. So what kind of actions or what kind of prayers did the high priest do inside the Holy of Holies? Most of it was sacrifices, uh, sacrifices with confession, confession about his own sins, about the sins of the priests, about the sins of the nation. It related to incense offerings as well, and and certainly you know, praying to God for the uh, atonement of the people of Israel. But a large part of the day was set aside to that service. But then when he would finish the service, which included, by the way, changing his clothing back and forth to special clothing that was for the day of Yom Kippur to the regular clothing that the high priest wore. It involved immersing himself in a mikvah, a ritual bath, a few times during the day. A lot of intense work. And then when he would finish and the people would realize that salvation was granted and atonement was granted, then a great celebration would begin. It says, Yom Tov Hayala Kohen Gadol. There was a holiday, and they would all celebrate together and give thanks to God for this great atonement that was given to them. For our Christian audience, they may remember that the New Testament calls Jesus our high priest, and that's what we believe he does for us, is provide the the way to forgiveness of sin, like the rabbi's describing. So we have verses like Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so for Christians who follow Jesus, we believe he is our high priest, as the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says. For Jews who depend on the mercy of God, what we call God the Father, then, Rabbi, I think we're in agreement here that we are able to approach the throne of God because of his mercy, because of his grace, as this verse 16 of Hebrews 4 says, to find mercy and grace in our time of need. Absolutely. And God understands that we are human beings, and that's why this day is built into the calendar. 
Uh, this day is built into the calendar because it's necessary. And by the way, our tradition teaches that this is the day that God granted the people of Israel atonement for the sin of the golden calf. It's built into the day itself. Uh, and God wants to grant us that mercy and that that and that comfort and that atonement. But we have to take uh, that step and we have to show the seriousness. The day of Yom Kippur will not atone just magically and automatically. It does have the power to atone, though, as on the heels of our service. It's our taking the steps to God and uh, and then God responds. And by the way, I don't know if you or, or certainly your, your listeners know this, uh, in, in Israel on Yom Kippur, there are polls that say 95% of Israeli of Jewish Israelis fast on this day and take this day as the Day of Atonement, even though we have a large secular population. You will not see a car on the street. There really is a feeling of a national day of spirituality, a national day of holiness, and you can actually feel it in the air, and you can almost feel the satisfaction that God so to speak, feels that we're taking this day seriously because that's all he wants to do is grant us uh, that atonement and be there for us in our time of need, exactly as he stated it. So as you move out of chapter 16 into Leviticus 17, you move from national repentance and national holiness to the call to individual holiness. And Rabbi, I think you would agree that one member of what we would call the body of Christ, one member of the church, has an effect on the people around him, just like one member of a family has an effect on the other. So talk about the transition here from chapter 16, where it's national repentance, to chapter 17, where it's personal holiness that's required. Sure. We're always functioning on two planes. Um, One is our national responsibilities, and one is that uh, we say in our phrase, for me the world was created, that I have to view myself as having the power to sustain the entire world, or that the whole world was worth being created for me, not for an egotistical reason, um, but because that's the power that every single individual has. Uh, we have a statement that all of Israel is responsible for one another. So my level of spirituality, of course, on one level impacts me and my immediate family, but it also has a broader impact as well. Uh, some of our sages talk about it as parts of a body, uh, one arm and the other arm. If one part of the body aches, the other uh, part of the body feels the pain. But that that one can feed the other, one can take care of the other. And that's the way we view it. And therefore, it's natural that on the heels of talking about national atonement that we'd, and holiness, that we'd focus in also on the individual. Then we move out of chapter 17 into Leviticus 18. And the Lord speaks to Moses in verse 1 and says, Say to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So we're back to national relationship with God, but specifically a covenant relationship that after chapter 16 talks about national repentance, chapter 17 talks about personal holiness, now chapter 18 is talking about national obedience or national worship of God. 
Yes, because there is also the holiness of the nation, and especially for the land of Israel, there's a, a level of holiness uh, that's expected as well. And remember, this is a people that emerged from Egypt, which was a land of terrible spiritual impurity, and the fears were that that those you know what they were exposed to stayed with them and became a part of them. That's why it deliberately says, "Don't act." according to uh, the ways of the people of Egypt. Don't act the way the people of the land of Canaan, which is the land of Israel, that you're going to act. You have to remain holy. You have to remain different. You have to remain separate. You have to elevate yourself uh, above that, not just as individuals, but as a, as a nation. And there have to be national norms and national uh, requirements that we keep to so that we can have that holiness. As we look at Leviticus 18, and the readers will look at it and notice some very explicit language and some very specific requirements and regulations regarding sexuality. And here we are, you're in Israel in 2018. Of course, I'm in America in 2018, and we see the world around us and the the sexual perversion that exists in the world today. And we read Leviticus 18 and recognize this is not a new problem. Sexual sin and sexual perversion was a problem over 3,000 years ago when this was written. Absolutely. According to the commentaries, uh, some of the behaviors that are described here are, were actually, uh, I don't want to say norms uh, in, in, in the world at the time, but in some of the societies, uh, they were very much norms. And, and we had to fight against that. And we sort of brought the rules of morality to the world. That's part of the Judeo-Christian ethic. Uh, you know, the words that we're reading here to us would seem so normal and natural and, and uh, oh, just the way we've grown up. But uh, in those times, this was nothing short of a, of a revolution. And uh, yes, that battle uh, lasts thousands of years, and that's part of the battle for spirituality. Moving into chapter 19, again, the Lord speaks to Moses and says to say to the people of Israel, Verse 2, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So this is connecting personal holiness to our relationship with God, that it matters how we live, that we can't separate our daily life from our walk with God, that it's supposed to be our commitment to the Heavenly Father is a guiding point for how we live our lives, that our holiness is is an act of obedience. And the fact that God calls it to us and says, you be holy because I am holy. What a, what a beautiful concept telling human beings that we have the capacity to reach godliness, that we have the capacity to uh, connect to God on that level. It's not where human beings uh, try to be good. It's trying to be godly. That's a whole other level, and I find it to be tremendously powerful. Uh, God expresses it in that way, that he has created us to enable us as human beings to connect to him. Uh, to be able to uh, channel our uh, human element, our physical life, to spirituality. And, and that's a command which you know, each person uh, can relate to on their level. It's a path in a lifetime uh, for people to work on. There's no magic formula. There can be ups and downs uh, along the way. But one thing is for sure, God is telling us, you can do it. Because he says, Kedoshim you. you should be holy. You can do it. He's almost giving us that pump-up speech and telling us that we can do it. Just follow his formula and that will happen. 
I think it's a very interesting pair of verses in Leviticus 19, verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says, Every one of you shall have reverence for his mother and father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. And the next verse, number four, do not turn to idols or make for yourself molden gods, small g, I am the Lord your God. So here, the Lord speaking to Moses connects what we might call family righteousness and family respect with do not uh, worship false idols. There's a connection there that I think is quite interesting. What is your thoughts on those two verses back to back? So actually, before we focus on the two verses back to back, just that first verse connecting the Sabbath with honoring our parents, we have a tradition that three people or three beings, so to speak, are partners in the creation of life. It's a mother, a father, and God. And certainly the Sabbath is the day to focus on God, to recognize God as creator. It's the seventh day of creation, and we remind ourselves that he's creator and honoring our parents, certainly giving tribute to the physical representatives who brought us into this world. So there's a direct connection between those two. And I think if you look at it in that sense, a creator of who do we owe our gratitude to, God and our parents, and then contrast that with idols, we're making the greatest declaration. These idols didn't create. These idols have no power. It's God. It's our parents. And uh, you have that distinction very clearly in terms of who do we owe our gratitude to and who is worth offering gratitude to. I, uh, I always think to myself when we talk about pagan worship, I, I don't want to worship a God that is a physical um, thing, object that I see in front of me. I want to worship the supernatural, the divine, something which is beyond my comprehension. And I think when we all reflect on the inherent love uh, that children have to their parent, to their parents, which is just embedded in nature, uh, we're supposed to have that love towards God as well. And we just have to remove all the blocks that are in the way which stop us from coming to that love. And that's very much the messages that we take uh, from those verses. I'd like to show our Christian listeners something and show the rabbi something as well. As you look at Leviticus 19, it begins with, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then the verses we just talked about, Have reverence for mother and father and keep my Sabbath. And then do not turn to idols or make for yourself molten gods or molten images. Then later on in Leviticus 19, it talks about starting in verse 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. Verse 14, do not curse a deaf man. Verse 15, do not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Verse 16, don't be a slanderer. Verse 17, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen. Verse 18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudges. So what I want to show our Christian audience is Going to Matthew 22, Jesus was asked the question, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind is the first commandment. Jesus said the second commandment is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Rabbi, that follows, I think, the teachings of Jesus follow coming right out of Leviticus 19. It starts with, number one, love the Lord your God, and number two, love your neighbor as yourself. And I see evidence of that here in Leviticus 19. Well, I don't have a doubt that uh, so many elements of the Christian faith 
uh, emerge from the teachings that we have here in the Torah. And that's why it's so important uh, to be studying them and to see those connections, because uh, it all comes uh, from, from this source. And yes, we definitely see a direct connection between uh, the verses exactly uh, how you described it. And all of it together paints the picture of holiness. Yes, it's worship of God. Yes, it's being sensitive to others. Yes, it's it, how we act. It's all entire picture uh, that comes together, and that's the most critical thing for us to realize. It's not focusing on one thing or another, but it's the entire picture. And following what God says in all areas, that's what enables us to be holy. And remembering, going back to the previous portion, that we can fail, and we're human beings, and there's a path towards repentance, and you can continue back on the path towards holiness. This week's Torah portion covers Leviticus chapter 16 through 20. So we come to the last chapter of the portion, Leviticus 20, and we're starting to be warned about Molech and do not worship Molech. Do not give any of your offspring to Molech. Who is this God and what is the danger here? So there's a lot of discussion in the commentaries trying to understand exactly what uh, this Molech is. And according to some commentaries, uh, it was it was actually sacrificing their own children, according to others, it was passing through fire. But one thing is for sure, it was viewed as something which completely takes us away, uh, completely takes us away from God. That somehow it was, you know, we're a God of life, we're a God that's, we're, we're a religion, and we, are, we have, both of us have faiths that, that celebrate life, and all of these other pagan uh, worships which seem to celebrate death and impurity, are things to stay away from. By the way, if I can draw the parallel to today's time, the fact that we live in an age where uh, radical Islamic jihadists are teaching their children to grow up and be martyrs, to grow up and blow themselves up and kill Jews in Israel, to go into places in the United States and commit suicide but kill uh, you know, what they view as the, the, the devil in, in the United States, uh, that's Moloch. That's people who are doing the exact same thing, and it's very clear the Torah has drawn that line and said we're on one side, they're on the other side, and we have to fight against that evil. And it's amazing to me that even though we don't know precisely what the Moloch was back then, but we know that it involved children, it involved fire, it involved death, and we have that same concept today. So, Rabbi, we come to the end of Leviticus chapter 20, and we have the last two verses, one very positive and encouraging and one very difficult to read. And to be honest with our listeners, I want to deal with both of them. So let's look at Leviticus 20, verse 26. The Lord says, Thus you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. Again, the idea of covenant relationship that we are welcomed into the presence of God if we will humble ourselves, if we will bow before the King of Kings, the Melech HaMelechim. We can bow our hearts before him and he welcomes us in, into his presence. Like we read in Hebrews 4, it says you can come boldly into his throne room. So I want to talk about verse 26 in the aspect that we get to be welcomed into God's presence. And then I think we need to be honest and wrestle with verse 27 because that's a difficult one. So first, your thoughts on 2026. Well, I, I think that the idea of God saying that he separates ourselves from the nations to be his, uh, we as the Jewish people uh, do have this concept of being a chosen people. 
but not, this is so key to explain, chosen for responsibility, not chosen for exclusivity. We're not here to say it's all about us and not the nations of the world. It's just the opposite. We have a responsibility to bring God to the nations of the world. So in order to do so, we do have to be separated. We have to have our own special land to live in. We have to have our 613 commandments. And we're expected to be holy, and we're expected to be an example that brings God and spirituality to the world. And that is what God is telling us right here. If we're to be his people, we have to act like that, uh, both because it's respect to him, and also because that's the only way we can fulfill our mission, which is to bring spirituality to the world. People have to see us, and they have to see spirituality, and that's the example that we're supposed to be. And so the last verse of this portion, Leviticus 20, verse 27, is something we don't like to read about in a modern world. It says, Now a man or a woman who is a medium or a spiritist shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. And we don't like this kind of verse, and we say this is old-fashioned or it's outdated or something, but the Word of God is true, and the Word of God is living and active, says Timothy of the New Testament. How are we in a modern world supposed to deal with a tough verse like that? So the way we uh, look at it, and uh, it's a great question, it's hard for us to We actually have a tradition that there was almost never capital punishment because the rules that were in place to make it happen make it almost impossible. Just in terms of what, what the witnesses have to see, how they have to testify, all the situation is very difficult to actually take place. But it's for us to understand the seriousness of the sin. If someone would commit this, and in this case, talking about this this witchcraft and, and other ghost elements, uh, that is so detrimental to spirituality and so takes away from God that person deserves to be stoned to death and all the pain that that image conjures in our minds. Uh, that's how bad it is. Now, did it actually happen? Did it not happen? Are we expected to do that? No. But uh, just to understand the severity of it, that's very much the message that we received from the Torah dictating this kind of capital punishment. We do apologize to our listeners. We've had some technical difficulties on this podcast. And so as we wrap it up, Rabbi, there's been good news and bad news. There's been ups and downs in this Torah reading from Leviticus 16 through 20. Wrap it up for us today. So I think it's that thread of God telling us how holy we can be, follow these regulations, both in terms of man and God and man and man, and you'll achieve that holiness. But again, he starts it with Yom Kippur. He starts it with a Day of Atonement. He knows that there will be sin. He knows that we're human beings. And the question is what we do when that happens and climb ourselves back up uh, to be holy and to strive for that and to recognize that once we are holy and once we improve ourselves, we can have an impact on other people as well. Rabbi, I always enjoy the study together. Thank you, God, that you give us the technology to be able to do this. Thank you, God, for preserving your word over these thousands of years. And thank you, Rabbi, for the discussion. Thank you so much, Pastor. And let me only share good news one to the other. Everyone, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to himself this week.